Hi, I'm Tyler, I'm autistic and welcome back to my podcast. The 1% is a show that explores the realities of being an autistic adult in the modern world. On this episode, I'm joined by the Head of Autism Research at Cambridge University, Dr. Baron Cohen. And if you've been here before, when we had the old name and I only interviewed autistic people and you're thinking, dude, what the fuck? Just trust me, this episode's worth a listen. We cover three important things. The concept of the hypersystemizer and its relevancy to autistic people. We discuss how society became more inclusive to autistic people in the world of work and school. And we round off our chat with a look to the future of STEM. Enjoy those three things and a load of other gems that'll help you understand autistic brains a little bit better. Like not to front load with excuses, but this is my first episode back after a long time away. So I'm just a little bit rusty. One last thing, and then I swear to God, you'll hear Simon's voice like after the sentence, I promise you. If you find this episode helpful or useful, please do share it with a friend. I'm Simon Baron Cohen. I'm the director of the Autism Research Centre at Cambridge University. I'm a psychologist, been working in the field of autism research for over 30 years. And I've just published this new book called The Pattern Seekers. So how did you fall, or maybe not fall, why did you choose to study and research autism? Um, After I graduated, I got a job as a teacher in a really small unit for autistic kids. This was back in the 80s when people didn't really know about autism or hadn't heard much about it. And it was small in the sense that there were just six kids and six teachers. So it was kind of um, one-to-one, really getting to know some kids in, in a lot of detail and their families. And it was sort of experimental because we didn't really know then and we could discuss whether we know any better now. But we didn't really know what could be helpful. So it was kind of trying things, seeing what worked, doing a lot of video recording of every, every day, every session in the school and then kind of reviewing the videotapes to see what had caused a tantrum, what had caused a meltdown, what had caused a good session, you know, just to try and understand what what might help. And I found it fascinating. Went on to do a PhD and still doing research today. (laughs) So this book (laughs) is the first book to do with autism that I've actually read, and it was very easy to digest. So thanks for that. So in it, you talk about the system, can I say it, systemizing mechanism. Exactly. What is it? So this is a theory that there is a special mechanism in the brain, which I call the systemizing mechanism, which looks for a special kind of patterns in the world. And in the book, I call them if and then patterns. And I argue that these patterns, when we, you know, that that humans, modern humans, homo sapiens, are the only species that can look for these patterns and that it underlies our capacity for invention. We seem to be the only species that's ever lived and that is currently living, if you look across other animals, that can invent in a kind of generative way that we can not just invent once, but we can do it lots of times. Uh, And that... You know, these if and then patterns, we can talk a bit more about them if you like. Some people kind of look for them more than others. Some people look for them almost nonstop, what I call hyper-systemizing. And I use this word systemizing because the definition of a system is that it has this if and then pattern. It's a kind of logic to it. It's And you could take a really simple example, like if the light switches up 
and I push it down, then the light goes on. You know, so it'd be a very simple electrical system there. So systemizing doesn't need to be complex or very abstract. We come across systems all the time. You know, in our cooking, you know, if I take an egg and I boil it for four minutes, then the yolk will turn from yellow to orange. It'll go from soft to hard. So the invention of cooking, for example, which must have been a huge milestone in human evolution, you know, we do it and other species don't do it. And it opens up all sorts of possibilities for our diet and our survival. You know, it's, it's a very important mechanism. And the link to autism is that in our research, we found that autistic people, on average, are more drawn, more attracted to these special patterns, if and then patterns, than uh, non-autistic people. So I kind of, that's one of the arguments I make in the book for why there might be a link between autism and the capacity for human invention. So with the hypersystemizer being one type of brain in the book you mentioned, I think it's like four others, and yeah. that's why you brought in the idea of neurodiversity. And yeah. as an angle, that's one that I've not seen before, because generally neurodiversity tends to be, from what I've seen, mentioned in terms of autism and then other different conditions like dyslexia, dyspraxia, da, yeah, da, da. exactly. So how do you explain the other types of brains, like the four other different types of brains, mm -hmm. and how do we all exist in the world with all those brains? So, you know, the concept of neurodiversity, first of all, I think it's a really important concept. And although I've been hearing that word for maybe 10 years, I think a lot of people, it's quite a new concept. It's, it's, it's sort of been out in the media much more in the last year or so, as various companies have started sort of thinking about it. And you're right that a lot of people use it to, to mean we should be looking at people with neurodevelopmental conditions. So autism, dyslexia, ADHD, dyspraxia, there's a whole bunch of them. But I actually think that if you, if you really look at the concept of neurodiversity, and if you take it seriously, the idea is that there isn't a single way for the brain to be, or to, for the brain to get wired up. There's no such thing as a sort of normal brain there's lots of ways to be normal if you like and you know there might be dozens there might be hundreds you know that neuroscience and psychology is just beginning to scratch the surface at saying how many different types of brains are there out there in the world you know human brains and in my book i'm arguing that the research shows there's at least five so we've already talked about people who systemize a lot hyper-systemizers, that's one type. Then there are sort of people who kind of just systemize more than average, but they're not sort of um, really strong in terms of systemizing. So I just call them type S for systemizing. But there's a different kind of circuit in the brain that allows us to reveal other brain types in the population. And that circuit is called the empathy circuit. So we started off our conversation talking about the systemizing mechanism, which I think uh, you can see the first signs of between 70,000 and 100,000 years ago in terms of looking at what were humans, early humans producing and what is left over in the archaeological record. But I think that this other circuit, the empathy circuit, was probably also evolved in the human brain at around that time because humans were not just inventing complex tools like a bow and arrow, but they were also inventing art, sculpture, 
music, all sorts of things that are intended for an audience. And so it's not just about can you invent something at a technical level, like a complex tool, but you know, can you appreciate that another person might be interested in what you're inventing and another person might um, uh, you know, be open to receiving a message, you know, communication through art, through music, through sculpture, or through you know, um, other forms of communication, speech, sign language, all sorts of things. And obviously empathy allows us to kind of imagine what's in another person's mind and also respond to their thoughts and feelings. So back to the kind of neurodiversity and the different brain types. I think that another big brain type out there in the world are people I call type E for empathizers. So they are kind of more drawn to people than they are to things. They're more drawn to thinking about people's thoughts and feelings than they are to looking at the world of patterns like the systemizers. There's a kind of group in the middle called type B for balanced, that they're sort of equally interested in systems as they are in people. And then the last group are an extreme of the empathizers. I call them extreme type E. People who kind of empathize nonstop. That, you know, as soon as they're with another person, they're already starting to imagine what that person might be thinking or feeling. Or even when they're not with another person, they're just thinking about them in their absence, you know. Uh, but they're systemizing. Their systemizing might just be average or, or even below average. So those are the kind of five different brain types that I explore in the book. Autistic people tend to be, as a group, when you look at them on average, tend to be more likely to be type S for systemizers or extreme type S, really strongly drawn to patterns. Whilst their interest in people and particularly sort of you know, the empathy uh, might just be average or below average, at least when it comes to kind of one part of empathy, well, you know, what some people call theory of mind or cognitive empathy, just kind of imagining what another person is thinking or feeling. It's not that autistic people lack empathy, because that's definitely not true. You've met autistic people, or you've lived as an autistic person, you know, you know that Autistic people care about others. You know, autistic people, um, you know, don't want to hurt other people. So they're not sort of callous and indifferent, but they do have difficulties in reading other people, sort of trying to judge what somebody intended, uh, what somebody might know or need to know, you know, just keeping track of multiple perspectives as, as social interaction is changing all the time. So, I don't know, that gives you a sense of neurodiversity that goes way beyond people that have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's just about in any population, and we, we studied 600,000 people in a big study online and gave them various measures, and then the empathy quotient, the systemizing quotient, and then the autism spectrum quotient to look at how many autistic traits people have. And we just learned a lot from that big study, but we could see that in general, in the population, people fall into one of these five brain types. And so when we think about neurodiversity, whether it's in the education system or in the workplace, we do need to think that people aren't all the same. You know, we're all different and that one brain type or one learning style isn't better or worse than another. They're just different. 
how can society be more inclusive for people who are hypersystemizers and specifically autistic hypersystemizers? When I think about school and when I meet autistic people, a lot of them have had a miserable time at school. And if the school doesn't meet your needs, you can have a miserable time, you know. So if we think about the way schools are designed at the moment, there's this thing called the national curriculum that you're meant to learn a lot of subjects all at once. You know, and if you think back to like GCSEs, you're expected to learn eight, nine, ten subjects simultaneously. That just doesn't match the way autistic people like to think and like to work and learn. You know, autistic people and hypersystemizers like to go into one topic in detail and do it thoroughly and do it in depth and keep going to learn as much as they can about that one thing. Clinicians call it being obsessive. I think that's a very like derogatory way of describing it because I would, I would actually say that autistic people like to specialize. They like to become specialists in one thing at a time and don't want to learn things superficially. But the way that the education system is, is designed, you know, every 30 minutes the bell rings and you're expected to switch to another topic, which is, you know, hugely frustrating if, you, if you're someone that likes to just keep going deeper and deeper. There's lots of other ways in which the school system is kind of not working for a lot of autistic people, whether they've got a diagnosis or not, actually. So, for example, not all kids want to learn in a large classroom. Not all kids want to learn from a teacher. You know, they might want to learn in a more solitary way or they might want to learn through through experimenting and, and doing and like, just like, you know, getting getting involved in activities and just learning for themselves and by themselves or in small groups, which they can cope with, as opposed to a classroom of 30 kids where there's background chatter and distractions and, you know, it can be overwhelming. So I find it sort of heartbreaking that a lot of teenagers who are autistic drop out of school. They've often been bullied. So there's that other side of exclusion and not accepting people as being different. But they drop out, they often get depressed, you know, so they end up with poor mental health. And then when we think about sort of the workplace, you know, again, workplaces are often not designed to be autism friendly. People might be in open plan offices, which is really distracting for someone who's hypersensitive to sort of sounds and uh, light and so forth. They might be expected to be sociable when they perhaps don't want to be as sociable as others. They might not even get the job in the first place if the interview is all about eye contact and reading between the lines and all that stuff when autistic people often like things to be really clear and explicit, not no kind of hidden messages in communication and may not enjoy eye contact, you know. So for lots of reasons, you can see that school and the world of work might be maybe unintentionally um, discriminating against autistic people in just a way it's set up. And I think we could we could really sort of take a fresh look at the large numbers of people who struggle at school and at work and may, maybe don't get a job, may, maybe end up unemployed with all of the kind of, um, I don't know, the, you know, all the problems that that brings.
of feeling excluded from society, not valued by society, um, not having any money, so not feeling that you can even achieve independence or autonomy. You know, I think we could really take a fresh look and think how could we redesign workplaces without much money or, or, or schools, again, without needing to spend a lot of money, just a bit of intelligent sort of reflection on how could we make the classroom more inclusive? How could we make the workplace more inclusive? LSE put out a, sorry for the listeners, the London School yeah. of Economics, put out a, like a blog post, just wrote something up saying that this whole wave of teleworking that's come along with COVID is like, yeah. this is what autistic people need. So my my <laughs> thoughts on that yeah. um, were taking us out of the workplace and make not making us work from home, but saying working from home is the solution is in my eyes, letting non-autistic people get away with not including us or accepting our ways because we wouldn't be in the workplace. So you don't have to deal with the autistic member of staff. You just send them an email because they're not in the office though. Yeah, you can control your environment. And yes, you are like at home. It's a safe place somewhere that you know, you don't have to deal with the social interactions. I don't see that as a solution. What are your thoughts? COVID's been with us for just this year. So I don't think there's been enough time to really sort of ask the aut autism community, have they found it useful and sort of helpful to be working remotely? Would they prefer to be in the workplace, but maybe with different kinds of adjustments to make it sort of comfortable to work? You know, I, I don't think we should sort of assume that teleworking is going to be the answer for all autistic people or, you know. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we have learned that we can work remotely. Whether you're autistic or not, there might be some benefits to working remotely, uh, that we that we could have maybe a more balanced work-life balance. <laughs> you know, we can stop and go for a walk and, you know, things that are sometimes not as easy to do when you're in the office. But... You know, I think maybe there's there's a need for, you know, some consultation with the autism community about what would be their sort of preferred way of working. How can we make it easier for them to uh, participate in the world of work in a stress-free way? You know, and these days there's a lot of talk about mental health and, you know, keeping an eye on your stress levels, but that should apply to, to everybody. But, you know, it might be different for different autistic people and we just need to sort of ask individuals really rate that um in terms of the barriers to employment and you mentioned it yourself like getting a job tends to be one that's mm. pretty high um mm. so how would you sell a hyper systemizing brain in an interview in a way that the what do you call it the interviewer we yeah. then understand what you're trying to say because we can throw these words about but if you don't understand what the word hypersystemizing means you don't understand yeah, yeah, yeah. pattern spotting so how would you no. if you were an autistic person in an interview and someone's like what makes you special how would you sell the hypersystemizing brain i chose as the title of my book the pattern seekers because everyone knows what a pattern is and uh, the word seeking implies that this is a person with a brain who actively seeks out patterns in the world you know they're almost drawn to them magnetically because they are predictable, that's the whole thing about patterns, that unlike the social world, which is highly unpredictable, even this conversation, we're not quite sure where it's going to go. But with patterns, by definition, they, you know, you can repeat them. You can repeat them as many times as you like. Some people call them laws or regularities in the world. 
So these are, you know, so the hypersystemizer, the person who loves patterns, is someone who loves predictability and spotting those patterns. They can do that maybe more easily than other people. So in an interview, sorry, that's a kind of a long answer, but in an interview, I probably focus on the word pattern recognition. But also I would, if I was autistic, I would probably request that the interview wasn't about sitting face to face and having a verbal kind of focus on, on, the, on the verbal parts of the interview. I would say, you know, give me a task to do. You know, if, if the job involves filing or if it involves looking at a spreadsheet or if it involves fixing a bicycle, whatever the job is, right? Give me a task and give me a few minutes to kind of think about this logically and I'll have a good go at the task. And if I don't make eye contact or if I don't say very much, you know, judge me for what I can do. Don't judge me for the things that I find difficult. Because, you know, because the social side is all part of the disability. Otherwise, people wouldn't need a diagnosis. So to judge someone, you know, for, as, who's applying for a job based on the things that kind of, you know, are at the core of their disability, that, that is sort of discrimination. Well, it's not sort of, it is discrimination. Whereas if you sort of say, well, the person, the whole person who's applying for this job is more than just their disability. You know, they, they have lots of skills and let's just let them shine at what they enjoy and what they can do, not sort of judge them for what they struggle to do. And I, you know, so I think there are companies that increasingly are saying, come in and show us what you can do with Lego, for example, you know, talking about pattern recognition, you know, build us something just using the things that many autistic kids love to play with or yeah, just giving them practical tasks and seeing that that shows the person's potential for this particular role. I rate that. Um, in terms of um, socialising not being a system or like a if and then type of pattern, for, phrase that question completely better than that, we exist in a social world and we kind of can't avoid the fact that you are going to have to interact with people and it doesn't come naturally to autistic people. So through your research or just through anything that you know, do you know of any like tips or like tricks or like try this to be a little bit better at it or just not find it so jarring and like mm. fear inducing? I mean, of course there are kind of programs that can help you to recognize emotions better. You know, there are kind of social skills type programs, but I suppose part of my message in, in this book is let's just accept autistic people as they are. They shouldn't have to kind of change who they are. Let people be themselves, because we know that if anyone tries to act as if they're somebody that they're not, it's going to lead to anxiety. You know, what if somebody finds out depression, you know, that I'm having to fake being somebody else because I'm not happy with who I am. You know, just let people be themselves and let's just enjoy diversity in any classroom or, you know, uh, in any community. Is there anything within the book that you're like, I love that part, you've not asked me about it, that you want to talk about today? <laughs> I'll answer that one, first of all, as a scientist, because that's, you know, that's what I do kind of day to day as I run a research group in the university and one of the kind of exciting findings that we had just in the last few years was to look at the genetics of autism and the genetics of people who love patterns so hyper systemizers 
and finding that there's a significant overlap in their genetic makeup. And again, on the face of it, you might not expect there to be a connection. You know, people think of autism as a disability and they think of people who are good at systemizing as people, for example, who work in STEM, you know, science, techno te technology, engineering and, and maths or, or other kind of areas of work which involve aptitude in pattern recognition, including inventors, you know, and yet finding this genetic overlap between the two. To me, that was an exciting moment in our research because it's sort of saying, you know, maybe we should stop thinking about autism as what the Americans call a disorder. I don't really like that word. I think it's a bit too kind of a bit harsh to tell somebody, you know, you have a disorder or your brain is disordered, you know. Um, but I suppose what the science is telling us is actually that some of the genes that cause autism also cause sort of talent in pattern recognition. So it should force us to kind of think differently about autism because these same genes that we see surfacing in, in people who may need a diagnosis have also played a role in human evolution. This is kind of the big story in the book, you know, that, you know, what sets us apart from other animals is our capacity to invent. No other species does it. And it seems like some of the genes for autism also gave rise to that ability. So I think it's a kind of a, it's a different sort of take on autism, but it's a very celebratory one. And it, you know, I think it's, it's much needed because you know, a lot of autistic people are, are struggling. And actually, if we can talk about the positive sides of autism, you know, it might just sort of encourage society, you know, employers, educators, social workers, doctors, all kinds of people to start thinking differently about the strengths, about what autistic people can bring to the world and do bring to the world. That message was really clearly like, I'm so bad with words, was very clearly put across in the book, especially in like the final couple of chapters. And it made me think that we could potentially have, you know how there are like entrepreneurship and like funding programs, like anyone who wants to do a startup, if you're in this group, if you're in that group, but they're not focusing on the group that naturally has brains that are meant for inventions. So, well, not meant for inventions, but naturally invent stuff. Yeah. So it's just like, I feel like if at some point there was like an autism creators fund or something like that, that would be so liberating for those who are like, yeah, let me put myself forward for this. Yeah. And we could get probably get a couple of good inventions out of it as well. Yeah. Um, something that we haven't had time to discuss today as well is the... Um, That's a brilliant idea, by the way. Thanks! <laughs> is the, what do you call it? The, the study you did, tried to do it at MIT, couldn't do it there. Then you mm -hmm. did it in... Oh, I did it in Eindhoven. That's where we did it, yeah. In the Netherlands, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. if, sorry, um, just to, to summarise it, I'm probably butcher it, you can correct me, but looking at the hypersystemizing brains, more likely to, ooh, to have autistic children, I feel like some people hearing that would be like, oh my gosh, we're going to end up with more autistic kids. What's going to happen to the world? And yeah, it's obviously not a positive take to have on it. No. Again, you know, we're trying to change the perception of autism. We shouldn't think of autism as a burden on society or, you know, like a problem. It's just another kind of mind. And, and it's got just all of us have strengths and difficulties, you know, and autism is just one example 
of a, of a particular profile. But we all have it. You know, some of us are great with words, but can't play sport. You know, there's kind of so many different, and vice versa, right? So the other thing we should keep in mind is that autism is about one or 2% of the population. So that's a, I think that's a sort of, it's a significant number of people. I think that by identifying where those people are likely to, which, which kinds of families kids might be more likely to develop autism in, could mean that we can just target resources in a, in a more kind of, I don't know, effective way. So if we know, for example, that Eindhoven, where we did that study, autism rates were twice as high as the two other Dutch cities we looked at. And we, you were just mentioning Eindhoven is a bit like MIT. It's got the Eindhoven Institute of Technology, so it's been attracting hyper-systemizers for a long time. Eindhoven, we also chose it because it's got the Philips factory there, which has been there for 100 years. So several generations of hyper-systemizers have moved to Eindhoven and had families and had kids there, you know. So once we know that, that you know, there's a link between hyper-systemizing and autism, genetic link, it just means that where there are those cities, you know, um, and there are plenty, the Silicon Valley would be another place on the planet, but Bangalore might be a third one. There's lots of these places where, that attract hyper-systemizers. We might just need to put in place more support services for those families and for their kids. Again, I don't see it as a big deal, but it's just, you know, it's allowing us to learn something about the causes of autism at the level of genetics and to sort of think practically what support services will those families need. I feel that was a very great place to end the conversation today. So thank you for your time. And is there, like, where can people engage with your work, find out what you do? And obviously we've got the book as well. So if you Mm. want to just... Yeah, so we have a a website for our research, which is autismresearchcentre.com. So, you know, that's where we make all of our scientific publications available, open access, so people can kind of read about the research firsthand. And the book, uh, The Pattern Seekers, is more kind of taking the research and making it more accessible to the wider uh, public. Maybe people who, who may not sort of want to read scientific stuff because it's full of jargon but actually you know expressed in the right way intelligent public the intelligent public and that's the way i regard the public should be able to grasp these ideas just as just as well as the scientists so that's why i've written the book that's it first episode back over and out we smashed it i think i did good you did great by listening anyway (laughs) hope you enjoyed it if you did and you want to be reminded when the next one comes out head to go.autistictyler.com slash remind me and i'll send you an episode summary link to the transcript and any extra resources that I find related to the episode that are helpful. If you want to have a read of the book we were referencing throughout the episode, it's called The Pattern Seekers. And again, guess where there's a link? Yep, it's in the show notes. One last thing before you go. If you found this episode useful, share it with someone you know, or someone you don't know, completely up to you, but just share it. Share the knowledge, share the wealth, share my questionable voice. <laughs> if you do decide to post about it on social media, you can tag me at Autistic Tyler. Tyler is spelled T-Y-L-A. That's it for now. Until next time, stay safe.